0: New Testament theologians will tell you that the documents, the New Testament documents, are occasional documents. And by that they mean that most of these documents came into being because of specific circumstances. That is, they were written to address particular issues among the believers of the first century. What is unique, however, about this is that though the scriptures, particularly the Pauline epistles, were written to address these particular matters, some were matters of doctrine, or some in terms of licentious behavior, sometimes a combination of both, as for example the case of the Corinthians, though there were occasional documents, nevertheless, they they have a transtemporal message a message that transcends centuries, that transcends generations and peoples and races, a document or documents that were relevant in the first century and are just as relevant for us today. One of these documents, of course, was the letter of Paul to the Colossians. This was a church that faced the problem of syncretism, a merging of Christian teaching with false teaching. We call it syncretism. It seems that the believers in Colossae were threatened by a mixture of Jewish mysticism and pagan philosophy. As you read in chapter 1 of Colossians, you will see that they were entertaining a philosophy rooted in human tradition. We see that in in chapter 1 where Paul says, That these believers were given to human tradition. So he tells them that they were those who were characterized by the worship of angels or angelic worship. They were those who were characterized by visionary experience, at least they thought that they had received visions. They were practicing ascetic, ascetic way of life, don't handle. Don't touch. You see it, for example, in chapter 2, 21. They were given to false humility, to severe treatment of the body, in verse 23. And the Apostle Paul writes, because they were combining these false teachings with what they had believed and heard, he emphasized two essential things about Christ. First of all, the sovereignty of Christ. They did not need additional truths to the faith. So he talked about the sovereignty of Christ. Christ is supreme over all creation. And then he spoke about the sufficiency of Christ. That in him all fullness resides. And they have partaken of his fullness. Therefore they did not need to add all of these false teaching and practices to their faith. He tells them in chapter 2 that Christ has triumphed over the cosmic powers and has made a spectacle of them. And then in chapter 3, there is a movement away from the first section, which is theologically inclined, to a more practical, applicatory second part of the book beginning in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Paul tells them that they are to seek the things which are above. He repeats it in different terms in verse 2, set your minds on things above. To seek the things above and to set their minds on things above are one and the same thing. What he's calling them to do is indeed to ensure that their thoughts and their affections Are ultimately where it is most important. It's placed in heaven, and it's to be placed in Christ. For He says, "They are to set their minds on things above, not on things on the earth. They are to set their minds on things above. Seek the things above, where Christ is." sitting at the right hand of God and so setting their minds on things above is essentially to set their minds on Christ his priority his will his way but then in verse 5 he begins to look at the implications of those who are setting their minds on things above and in verse 5 we have the main verb stated therefore Put to death your members which are on the earth. This is the theme of mortification, the term mortification, which men like John Calvin and John Owens have written about in the past, mortification. We want us to look at this subject. I want to look first at the basis of mortification, then I want to touch on the nature of mortification and finally I want us to consider something of the rationale for mortification, the basis of mortification. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But you notice he uses the word therefore twice. In fact, you, it may not be that apparent in your translation. But the the first, therefore, is found in verse 1. If then, well, that word then is therefore. If therefore you were raised with Christ, see the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Well, we find the word therefore again. And just in verse 5, therefore put to death. In the same way that therefore flows from what precedes it in chapter 2, 23, and what is above, that they have received the victory in Christ, that they share in the victory over the cosmic power, and therefore did not have to put themselves into human under human commandments, but rather that they were to set their minds and things above. In the same way, therefore, in verse 1, is reflecting upon what has preceded it. In verse 5, therefore, is... An elation, an influence, drawn from what proceeds in verses 1 to 4. And what the reason for him to say, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. The reason he says that, it is precisely because of their union with Christ. Paul has described their believers' union with Christ in the command to set their minds on things above. First of all, he says in this passage in verse 3, For you died. But we must read you died as you died with Christ. Believers are united to Christ in his death. And so we find the same thing in verse 20 of chapter 2, where he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ... You see, our Lord's death on the cross was our death because we were united in him or with him. Therefore, if you died with Christ on the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to the, regula- to the regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Believers are united to Christ in his death. Paul in Romans chapter 6 makes that very clear, that we died with him. And in a sense, we died objectively with Christ when he died on the cross. His death was our death. We died with him subjectively when we were converted. There was a death, a separation from the life of sin. But believers share with Christ in his death. They're united to him. They're in him. You know, this Paul uses the language of union with Christ. In verse 1, he says, if you then were Raised with Christ. With Christ. Union with Christ. Not only do believers die with Christ. But believers have been raised with him. If then you were raised with Christ. He's not suggesting that he doubts it. He's saying in other words. Since you have been raised with Christ. You've died with him. You've been raised with him. Seek those things which are above. He said the believer is united to Christ. Right now we have language that Paul uses in that twin epistle of Ephesians. For in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul could say even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and has made us to sit in the heavenly places. You see he talks about their death with Christ, their resurrection with Christ. But also he speaks here of the union in Christ as being Hidden in Christ, he tells them this in our passage. He says, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life, he says, is hidden with Christ in God. That we have been joined to Christ. That we died with him, that we were raised with him. And that we are in him. That our lives are hidden with Christ. This language of our lives being hidden with Christ. Speaks of secrecy. Secrecy. There's a sense in which we are in Christ in heaven. That is not abundantly clear to us. It is real. But it defies our own understanding and even our own description. This life of the believer being hidden in Christ, not only speaks of mystery, it speaks of security. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. In other words, our lives are kept safe by Christ and by the Father. We're hidden, protected, spared, kept because our lives are in Christ who lives. But you see, the believer... This language of his life being hidden. Yes, there is mystery and secrecy as to how the Lord preserves us in himself. There is security and there is identity because we are in Christ. You see, the writer says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, when Christ who is our life, doesn't even say when Christ who gives you life. But when Christ, who is our life, Christ himself is the source and substance of the believer's life. That that our lives that are hidden in Christ shape our identity. Not only does it give us security, but it gives us our identity. We are in Christ, and he is our life. It is on this basis, then, of this vital union with Christ that the writer, therefore, says, therefore, You are hidden with Christ. Your life is in Christ. Christ is your life. Therefore, put to death. What am I arguing? The basis of mortification, putting sin to death, is that we are in Christ. That we will not be able on our own. This is not a command given to all and sundry. The Apostle Paul is not suggesting that everybody in Colossae would be able to put sin to death, to mortify sin. But it is only those who have set their eyes upon Christ. It is only those who are in him, who are united to him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It is only those who are united to him in his ascension. Only these can put sin to death. The basis then, of mortification lies in the believers' union with the living, risen, and reigning Christ. But the nature of mortification, as we consider the text further, is radical, specific, and comprehensive. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What is mortification? What is mortification? What does it mean to mortify? It simply means to put to death. To put to death. And what they must put to death, he says, are their members which are on the earth. Now, he's not encouraging them self mutilation. Not telling them that they are to start dismembering themselves. But he's using your members which are on the earth as a metaphor for sin working through their persons. He's talking about sin in their lives. He he calls it your members which are on the earth because it is in their physical body, in their physical persons that they sin. And what he's calling upon them to do is not to use their members, their bodies, to sin. They are to put sin to death. There were those in Colossae who were boasting in their visionary experiences, boasting in their ascetic practices. Paul says, if you are united to Christ, mortify the members of the body. Put sin to death. We need to understand that the command then to put sin to death is a radical and immediate work. If you ask me what does it mean, what is involved in this act of putting sin to death, know that it is a radical and immediate work. A verb from the Greek necro, to put to death, is taken from the field of medicine where a surgeon would cut off Disease limbs. It is in the aorist tense because it calls for immediate and decisive action, meaning right at this moment, put sin to death. And that means it has to be radical, dramatic, and immediate. What does it mean? It is a renouncing of sin, a resisting of evil thoughts and habits. When I think of modification, I find the concept in places where the actual word is not used. Think, for instance, of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, where Paul tells Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation as appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness Unworldly lusts. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord. Now he doesn't say put to death. But he says the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared. And this grace has taught us to deny ungodliness. To say no to ungodliness and to worldly lusts. That is to modify sin, to say no. In fact, the verb to deny ungodliness is much stronger than simply deny. It means to refuse to give consent, not giving permission to sin. It means a refusal to associate with, to disdain, to reject, to repudiate. So when the Bible teaches us that we are to put sin to death, it is in effect telling us that we are to refuse to consent to sin, we are to refuse to associate, but we must repudiate and reject all appearance of sin. We must put it to death. It is a radical work because it calls for killing. It calls for killing sin. We must not consent. We must refuse to associate. We must, in fact, repudiate all sin. It means that we must deal with secret sins and outward sins. John Owen, to whom we will refer again, in dealing with this matter of modification, says that there are three things that are important in modification. He says, There must be an opposition or bent of the heart against sin. In other words, you cannot reject sin. You can't repudiate it. You can't deny it. You can't cast it off unless there there is an inward bent and disposition against it. In other words, there must be an inward hatred of sin. Do you know why? Do you know why we continue to practice sin? Apart from the fact that we are weak by ourselves. Is because we don't, we don't hate sin enough. We don't see how ugly it is. We are not taken aback by the heinousness of sin. We do not recognize that this is what brought our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. This is why he suffered and this is why he was crucified. We do not understand that sin damns. And leads to eternal damnation. From which there is no escape. You see. Owen says that there must be an opposition or bent of the heart against sin. Secondly, he says if we are to put sin to death, mortified, we must shun all occasions that serve as fuel to it. One of the reasons that we sin is because we don't know ourselves. And particularly, we don't know our weaknesses. We tend to think that we are stronger than we are. We think we can come as close to the fire as possible and not get burnt. You take pornography. What happens there? It's the notion, I take one little look. Not not a big thing. I can deal with it. And then you are hooked and dragged in. You nibble at the edge, and you swallow the whole monster. This is Owen who says, he who dallies with sin will dare to sin. In other words, if you play with it a little, you will eventually dare to sin. So Owen says, we have to shun all occasions. You have to take proactive action. You have to run away from sin. There's a sense in which all Christians are called to be cowards. We're to be brave like lion when we, when we stand for Christ. But where sin is concerned, we're called to run. Nobody, the Lord never tells us to go, right, and, and hug with sin and debate sin and discuss it and so on and have dark, you know, you know, great treats written about it and so on. We're, we're told to run at the very occasion. We're to flee. There's a time to fight and there's a time to flee. And when it concerns sin, we're to flee. You are to run away from it. And Owen makes it clear that we are to shun all occasions that serve to everything that incite, that will encourage you to sin, you must reject. And he says that we are to apply, thirdly, all such means to subdue corruption. We are to use every means to subdue it. Three things. There must be opposition in the heart. There must be a shunning of the occasion that incites sin. And they must be applying of all means, and it means the means of grace, to subdue corruption. This is a radical work. A killing work. An immediate work. A work that cannot wait until tomorrow, but must be done now. That's the the language of the Greek. Therefore, put to death at this very moment your members which are on the earth. Sinful things. If modification is a radical and immediate work I would suggest to you that it is a specific work because he tells us specific sins that are to be put to death there are two lists of sins each list contains five sins we find the first one right here in our passage in verse 5 we find the second In verse 8. These two lists then are in verses 5 and verse 8. And they are specific sin. You see, modification is a specific work. He begins in this first list of sin in verse 5. In a movement from the external to the internal. He defines sin in, in in the external and then the internal. So he says, put to death your members which are on the earth, and he begins with fornication, pornea. He's talking about sexual immorality. And it covers all acts. That essentially the scripture is that marriage is between one man and one woman and for life. And that prior to marriage we are to abstain from sex. And that in marriage we are only to be involved with our wives or husbands. And that in marriage, we are not to deny our partners. You shouldn't use sexual relationship as a bargaining chip, as a means of eliciting compliance from your husband or from your wife. Don't, get, don't come near me you know, until you behave or you give me what I want or buy me that car or be a nice husband. Then you can look at me or you can touch me. no. Marriage is between a man and a wife and it must not be used as a bargaining chip. We are only to deny each other for prayer and only for a short time. You can't go and say, Lord, you know, I'm going to be praying for the next five years and therefore please um, stay away from me. So the writer says we are to put to death pornea, sexual immorality. You know, every time you turn around and turn on the TV, it's amazing. You know, somebody is advertising a shaver for men. And we don't understand, but somehow they have to insinuate a woman uh, almost partially naked in shaving. You want to go, they want to sell you a Pepsi. You just want to, well, okay, they want to sell you Pepsi and they work on your thirst, but somehow they add some sexual notion to drinking. You think it just, it doesn't make any sense. We are a sex-crazy society. You know, you, you walk down Young Street. you need well, dark glasses even can't help you. It's crazy. And it all appears to be normal. But in seeking after holiness of life, as we spoke about this morning, they must be killing. And killing of the things that are displeasing, he says, fornication. And then he says, put to death uncleanness. Now, uncleanness, the, the difference between fornication and uncleanness, or porneia and uncleanness, is not that great. It again refers to every sexual behavior that is displeasing to the Lord. They are to put to death. Porneia, they are to put to death. Uncleanness. Some have seen uncleanness as a reference to sexual sins that does not involve copulation. So things like petting and so on and so on. I do not know that there is legitimate grounds to to make that distinction. It just refers to all sexual sins and must be seen almost as synonymous with ponia. But they are to put aside not only uncleanness, as we have it in verse 5, is specific sins. He says that the Buddha said passion. And here, passion refers to the driving force that will not give up until what it desires is satisfied. Again, it is similar to the next term, evil desires, which refers to lust. This is a longing. This, This lust refers to that illegitimate longing that covers all evil longings, all evil desires. And then he says that to put aside covetousness. That is insatiable greed. The more we see, the more we want. You know, That jealousy, that lust for things. You walk past a hundred dresses and you want a hundred of them. Never be satisfied. always wanting more and more. And Paul says that are put to death covetousness this insatiable desire for more, which he describes here as idolatry. He says covetousness, that is the longing, the desire for more and for more. He says it is idolatry. It is to worship an idol. Why? Because covetousness turns material things into go- into gods. It places material things at the center of one's life. One therefore gives the place to material things that should be given to God and anything that becomes more important to us than God is an idol. And so he says, covetousness, which desires things, is idolatry because we're taking things and making them into gods. You see, mortification is a specific work. We must put aside specific sins. We We mustn't just talk about Yes, we must give up our sins. We must name them and list them. But you see, thirdly, mortification, if if it is not only a specific word, it is a comprehensive act. The writer, before he comes here, you know, by the way, he says, in verse 6, because of these things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, and so on, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You can't practice them because God's wrath is coming upon those who do so. And he says, by the way, remember that in in which you once, yourself once walked, you once, when you lived in them, these are things that you used to practice and now give them up. God's wrath is coming upon those who practice such things. But then he shows us that this is a comprehensive act. And he gives us a second list. Here, he says in verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these And then he lists the sins. He says, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and fearful language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We need to understand that he's listing these sins not to suggest that they are the entirety of the sins that we need to get rid of, but they are representative. You see, modification is a comprehensive work. It involves the eradication, the rejection, the renunciation of all sins, and the writer simply categorizes some of these sins. But it's a comprehensive act. He says that they must get rid of. They must put off. The verb to put off is the is a term that means to strip off. Dirty clothing. You, you know, you know you're going in the garden and you're working all day and you're bent over, you're pulling up weeds. And you're on your knees and the sun comes and it's scorching. And you can feel the sweat going by the back of your neck down your back. And after a while your 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 blouse or your shirt is soaked and sticking to your your, your skin. And then you go inside and you you gotta bend over. The thing is so much sticking to you, you got to bend over to tear it off. It, wow, it's nasty. You toss it away in the laundry bin. And that's exactly the image here when he says that are put off, you're to take off these things, these behaviors, these vices, the way you strip off dirty clothing, d- dirty clothing. He says, "But you are, but now you yourselves are to put off all these." And he lists some of the vices that are put aside, the second list. He says they are to put aside anger and wrath. He's talking about that burning, flaring anger in the heart. An anger which often is aroused by a misperceived notion of our own importance. He says to put off. Now you yourself are to put off anger and wrath and malice. That is that viciousness in us which is intended to do harm to other. We're to put off slander. That is speech. That is harmful. That is intended to damage the reputation and the character of another. We're to put off slander. He says we're to put off foul language. Notice. He says we're to put off malice. Foul language. Or filth the language out of your mouth. We are not to be cursing and swearing. We are not to be taking the Lord's name in vain. We are not to be using foul, smelly, unclean words. You imagine, you, know, you can't have a decent conversation, even at work with people. It's a, it's a whole list of profanities. Uh, on and on and on. Swearing for no apparent. And what is so remarkable is that even when the guys are giving a joke, they're swearing in the midst of it. They don't have to be angry to swear, it just comes out like a verbal belch. Those who are seeking after godliness, who are going to mortify sin, must be careful about the language we use. we shouldn't sound like the world we should not behave like the world we should not act like the world nor should we speak like the world there must be sanctification in our speech we are putting sin to death it's a comprehensive work it involves not only the sexual the sexual behavior of believers it involves the exterior the interior it involves their, our relationship with one another, the words we speak, it is the entirety of our life. We're to put it off. And so you see, modification is radical, it's specific, and it is comprehensive. The rationale for it is given in our ta- text. Not only do we see the nature of it, but we see something of the rationale. And there, he says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Still talking about sins of the tongue. And then he says, since you have put off the old man, here is the reason, you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. He's saying the basis for modification is your union with Christ. The nature of, you know, of this modification is indeed because not only are you in Christ, But this requires of you a radical work, a specific work of dealing with specific sins, and a comprehensive work in getting rid of all sins. But the reason you should do this, he says, because something has happened. You have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge. And so there are two reasons why they are to divest themselves of their sinful practices. The first reason is they have put off the old man. The second reason, they have put on the new man. Now the question is, what is the old man and what is the new man? Let me tell you what it is not. The old man does not refer to the old nature. The new man does not refer to the new nature. What he's talking about is more comprehensive than our proclivity to sin or proclivity to doing good the old man refers to the old self the persons we were in Adam the persons we were in our unregenerate unconverted self the life that was lived apart from Christ and dominated by the flesh that's the old man it's who you were before you were converted when you were in Adam he says but you have put that person off The new man, then, is the new person that we are, in Christ. Ruled and governed by the Spirit of of God. It is not, therefore, a, a mere change in conduct, but a change in headship. Because we are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. That's the new man who is in Christ. And we need to understand that to be in Christ, we are not then partially... New self or new man and partially old self or old man. We're not a sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. We are new. We are the new man, the new self. we have put on the new self. We're no longer in Adam. There's been a change in Aaron, a complete change in our persons. We are new. And yet we are not perfect creatures. We still have the old nature. There is still a part of us that is given and enticed by sin. And notice what the writer says. He says, Do not lie to one of the sins you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So though we are new creations, we are not perfect creations. Look. It's possible to buy a brand new car, you know, and after driving it around for a week, you're taking it back because this thing is a lemon. It has all kinds of problems. It's brand new, right? But it has defects. We are new creatures in Christ, but we are not perfect. We've got to be renewed. We are being renewed. And this is, we're being renewed in knowledge because when the fall occurred, we lost the knowledge of God. We did not know God as we ought to know him. We were, We were then immersed in darkness, spiritual darkness, took over because of the fall. And so the new man is being renewed in knowledge, knowledge of God's person, knowledge of God's will. We are being renewed. And secondly, there is this, there is this then progressive transformation, he says, in the likeness of Christ. We are re- renewed after the image of him who created us. So not only are we being changed in our minds we are getting to know God more as a new man, but we are changing the image of the one who created us, who is God. Now, this, the image of God is a, a touchy subject, different perspectives on the image of God. And I would agree that the image of God in man refers to man's exercise of rule over creation as vice regents under God. In other words, we are God's image bearers because like God, we have been given the task to rule over creation as God rules. We are not God's, but we are his representatives ruling over creation, so we are in his image. We are exercising the image of God in a functional sense because we are ruling over creation. But that does not mean because we can see the image of God in, functional, in a functional sense that we ought to forget that the image of God does have a moral component. I know this is denied by, by many in, in at least in Old Testament and even New Testament theology but I would suggest to you that we bear the image of God not only in a functional but also in a moral sense. And one of the reasons for saying that is because of what we read in Ephesians 4.24. He says, And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The new persons that we are are being made in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the image of God does bear a moral component. We are to be like God. And notice, if, if, if that is not sufficient, in Romans 8, 20, Paul says, For whom he foreknew, that is God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to be like Christ. The whole teaching on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is to imitate the character of Christ, to bear the character of Christ. We are not, God's purpose is not to make us like Christ so we should just merely rule over creation, but that we shall morally resemble, that we should show his and display his nature. And what Paul is saying, therefore, is that they are to put aside sin, tear it off and strip it away. Why? Because they have put off the old man. The persons they were in Adam. They have put on the new man in Christ. They are new creations in Christ. And they are being changed in knowledge. And they are being changed into the image of Christ. And that is the purpose of God. And he makes it clear that this new man who was being changed in the image of Christ. Cannot be distinguished from other believers. On the basis of race and status and gender. He says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything to everyone. What is he saying? He said, In Christ, as new persons, we are united. It is not impossible to make a distinction between one Christian and another. But these distinctions are artificial, they are not real. Because in Christ there is no superiority, there is no greater or lesser. The Jews are not better than the Greeks. The circumcised are not greater than the uncircumcised. The barbarians not greater than the city. And the slaves not greater than the free and so on. All are one in Christ. And so what is he saying? He's saying that the reason that we are to live out this life, we are to put to death the old man, it is precisely because we are new creations in Christ. We are put off the old man. We are put on the new. And we are being renewed. And all of us who are being renewed are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. mortification put into death is most difficult and it is painful but it is a necessary work. We live so long in this world that our sins cling to us. We even make room for them. We excuse them. We overlook them. We downplay them. But here the writer says, you are to put sins to death. It's a most difficult and painful work. It's a radical work. But it is unnecessary work. We are to repudiate every sin. We are to turn from every sin. It is John Owen, and I'm, I apologize for, call, for quoting him again, but he says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's either you kill sin or sin kills you, but somebody's going to die. Me killing sin or sin will be killing you. You must, as you attempt to modify, to put to death the sins that are in our lives, remember that our lives are hidden with Christ. That we have known something of the safety and the security that we identified with, that we are in him. That it is because we are united to the crucified and risen Christ. It is because Christ has come into the world and died for us. And has made us his own so that we are wrapped up in him. So that we are secure in him. It is because we have tasted of his goodness. It is because we are identified with him. That we should hate sin and love our savior. We must by the grace of God put sin to death because of Christ. He's the lover of our souls. And we would do nothing to displease him. How, how can we live in sin day in and day out and displease the Savior who loved us and died for us? We are in him. And we are to flee from every sin because of Christ, because he has loved us and joined himself to us. And this, this act of killing sin requires certain things. First of all, it requires self-denial. We must deny ourselves. It is John Calvin who says, in dealing with sin, in renouncing sin, he says we must put off ourselves. That's an interesting description. We must put off ourselves. We mustn't be who we were in our sins. He says we must depart from inborn dispositions to renounce sin. We see something of the language of this in Romans 6, 6-11. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. And that we should no longer be saved of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that also we shall live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died his sins once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saying say no to sin, we are modified. It. it requires self-denial. We are to reckon, to consider ourselves as dead to sin, as those who have died to sin. That we are no longer under the power and the captivity of sin. But we must, as we practice self-denial, saying no, not giving in to every impulse that crosses our mind. We must modify the flesh put to death, the sins of the body, in the work of the spirit, through the spirit. Notice what Paul says to the Romans. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we modify By renouncing sin, by reckoning ourselves to have died to sin, by self-denial, yes. But Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is by the Spirit, by the help and the assistance and the power that the Spirit gives that we put to death our sinful habits and practices. Only by the Spirit. Again, the great theologian, John Owens, on modification, says this. How does the Spirit, he explains to us how the Spirit modifies sin. He says, this, the way the Holy Spirit goes about killing off sin in us is first of all, by causing our hearts to abound in the graces or in the grace of God. In other words, he promotes grace. Uh, what Owen means by that is the fruit of the Spirit. So the way the Holy Spirit goes about killing sin is that He doesn't start with a negative work, but He starts with a positive work. In other words, He starts causing grace, the fruit of the Spirit, to grow in you. Do you know there are some weeds in Ontario that it doesn't seem to—it doesn't matter what you do, they seem to be always there. And every year you go out and you kill them, and next year, what did they take over the whole place? Sometimes they look beautiful, but they're weeds. And you've got to kill them. Now, you, now, you're not allowed to use chemicals to spray your lawns anymore, right? So the work is even more difficult. But what, how, do, how do the experts tell you to kill these weeds? They don't necessarily tell you all you can do is pluck them. They tell you, yes, go on your knees and dig them out. Go down to the root, dig them all out, and so on. But I tell you that there is also another method of tra- killing weeds. Overseed your garden. Plant a lot of good grass. Just seed the whole thing and water it. And what happens is that the grass starts growing thick and chokes. Chokes the weed. They can't grow. They can't get sunlight. They can't grow. You overseed. So the spirit of God overseeds our heart. He starts causing grace and the fruit of the spirit to pop up all over our lives. And reduces the space for sin to take root. He causes grace to abound and the fruit of the Spirit to abound in our hearts, contrary to the flesh. Secondly, he says, the Spirit of God works effectively, physically and effectively, on the very root of sin. In other words, not only does the Spirit of God cause grace to abound in our hearts and the fruit of the Spirit to grow, he actually gets to work at the root of sin. Starts weakening it. Starts uprooting it. Starts destroying it. And he says, the third way the Spirit of God kills sin in the heart is by bringing the cross to the heart. Because Owens believed that there is sin killing power in the cross. He believes that the Spirit of God brings Christ and brings the cross to our hearts. And it is in the cross that real power is released to put sin to death. Because when we see the greatness of the love of the Savior, Brings the cross with sin killing power to the heart. My dear friends, let's not spare sin. Let's give sin no ground. Let's take a hard and profound and deep look at our hearts. And let's pursue sin in every crevice and every corner where it hides. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves. Let's be frank, let's ask the Spirit of God to do a diagnosis, to show us where we are sinful, where we are weak, and then ask the Spirit by prayer and by faith, depend upon him to bring his sin-killing power to our hearts. But my friends, put sin to death. If it is pride, if it is lust, if it is laziness, if it is anger, whatever it may be, if it is bitterness and resentment, Whatever that sin may be, you are in Christ. Therefore, put sin, mortify sin, and mortify sin by reliance upon the Holy Spirit for his name's sake.